Education is the foundation of the American dream and the pathway to economic mobility. And higher education is the culmination of that dream. But for many families, that dream comes at enormous cost and sacrifice. Today, we go behind the scenes of a Bush Institute policy discussion as four of our experts tackle college affordability and the topic that's the subject of water cooler talk everywhere, college debt forgiveness. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist After Hours. We've assembled our super friends of Bush Institute experts today to talk about an issue that's that's hot in the news right now, which is college affordability and student loans and student loan debt forgiveness. Um, in our conversation today, we have Holly Kuzmich, the executive director of the Bush Institute. Holly, thank you for spending Friday afternoon with us. Good to be here. Cullum Clark, the director at the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative. Cullum, thank you so much. Great to be with you, Andrew. Ann Wicks, the Ann Kibble Johnson Director of Education and Opportunity. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for doing this, Anne. And finally, Justine Taylor-Raymond, the Deputy Director of Education at the Bush Institute. Justine, I think this is your first time on, isn't it? It is. Thank you for having me. I am really glad that you're able to carve time out of your busy schedule for us. Always. So, you know, there's a lot of facets to this conversation. There's a lot of different things going on going on with this. And so we're going we're gonna to start in one place and just let this go where it will. And so, first off, let's start... Start with you, Holly. Do colleges and universities have an obligation to make their services affordable? So are we, are, are we at a place where we, we're saying that this is a public policy concern, the higher education from universities? Here's what I want to say about that. Number one, we have so much data to know, and this has been true for, for so much of our history, that college degrees benefit you throughout your life. Um, financially and in many other ways. But I mean, you know, if you get a college degree, you are going to be better off throughout your life. The earnings show it, the lifetime earnings show it, studies have consistently showed this. So number one, we know that a pathway to opportunity is significantly predicated on education. Um, And you can talk about differences of two-year and four-year degree and which degree you get and what you study, and hopefully we'll get into a little bit of that. But number one is just like a major point. Education matters to your life and to improving opportunity, particularly for people who come from backgrounds um, who may be first-generation college students, et cetera, or come as the first one in their family to go to college. Um, And then number two, yes, I think as a society, we have always made a commitment. Look at all the federal aid that we generally provide and grants and loans. Look at all the state aid that we provide um, to support education for our citizens. We know it's good for them and our institutions, um, both public and private, significantly public, of course, which are mostly publicly funded, but even our private institutions are heavily publicly funded, even if they're a private institution. So we have already made decisions as a society that this is important, and we have the data to show that getting college degrees improves a person's life. Then you get into these decisions of like, how much aid and to who and how do we do this in a smart way, which we're going to talk about today. But yes, colleges and universities absolutely have a role in thinking about affordability and leaders and public policy leaders have a really important role in thinking about affordability of colleges and universities. There's a lot of places here in the U.S. where you say, well, you can, you can just charge what you can get for your service. And so a lot of universities 
are able to charge a lot of money for those services. Is is that though? I guess Holly, you mentioned that they, that colleges receive um, federal money to do what they're doing. So is 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 it not quite truly a marketplace then? Like we think about a traditional marketplace where goods and services pass back and forth. And what do you think? I don't, it's not a it's not a pure marketplace at all. As Holly was describing, there's so much public money that is already in the system. So if you think about how um, colleges make their money, it's tuition dollars, but it's financial aid, it's loans, it's research dollars, it might be other things where they're making money. There's a lot of money that's coming in. Most of it is public. That's just going to throw off your sort of pricing and demand. I know as someone who'd worked in higher ed in the past – it's not lean oftentimes. There's not always logic to spending decisions where you're investing. There's not necessarily a lot of pressure to be be mindful of that. I'll be honest, right? Like if you're told this was your budget last year, the worst thing you can do is say you need less, right? And whether or not that that is, has any relation to student outcomes is sort of doesn't really matter. There isn't a lot of accountability on the public money for outcomes, meaning, you know, the students are bearing the brunt of any financial aid loans that they're getting coming in, but the institutions aren't on the hook for making sure that that student completes and leaves with the, with the degree that then sets them up, as Holly was describing, what we know from data, that they're going to have access to higher earnings over time and all the things that we want in their, in their lifetime. That's, that burden is solely placed on the student and not on um, the institution, and that's going to throw off all your carrots and sticks, I think, that would, we'd rather see in a more classic marketplace. Colm, what do you, what do you think? Well, I, I, I think we're kind of overdue for a conversation about what the responsibilities of higher ed institutions, uh, certainly public sector ones, but even private ones who enjoy all kinds of uh, public sector money coming in in lots of ways, uh, what their responsibilities are. Um, I think we've kind of unintentionally backed our way into a system in which the universities often act as revenue maximizing enterprises uh, with the idea that the burden of maintaining some reasonable degree of affordability, particularly for low to moderate income students, lies elsewhere. It lies on the people doing the student loans or the grants, you know, the Federal Department of Education and other sources. Um, and, you know, and that combination, uh, university charging is essentially trying to charge as much as it possibly can and maximize its revenues. Um, uh, totally unrelated entities, you know, actually doing, which are principally federal, uh, being the source of money, I think has kind of gotten us into this mess. There were, uh, in, in a sense, uh, misaligned incentives. Uh, you could say that there was what what we economists call moral hazard, uh, the idea that, um, in a sense, the uh, universities could raise tuitions to very, very high degrees and and have, uh, let's say, face less severe budget constraints in terms of all their spending decisions uh, because somebody else was uh, bearing the cost because they didn't really have to pay a price for it. Uh, and so we find ourselves with um, in a world where, on the one hand, we want access to higher ed to be more democratic and broadly spread than, ever, than it's ever been before in history. On the other hand, it's become um, incredibly expensive. Uh, that there, there's a very severe tension between those two things right now, and we're wrestling with it uh, uh, very much uh, today. I think that when I, I mean, I... I go back to Holly's point, too, and she started the conversation, which is, is college worth it, right, for every single degree? And that's something we keep coming back to. And I focused that when I was teaching, right? 
I, I completely bought into the idea and still obviously do that. I think education, statistically, you are more likely to have more outcomes but and more likely to have more opportunity, but not every degree is going to get you there. And what does it mean if you're going for the first time, kind of navigating college, not sure around the debt application process, which degree to pursue, and you're acquiring massive amounts of debt with the hope or belief that you will one day be able to recover that. And I think that's where that transparency an obligation that we're expecting colleges and colleges need to be taking on more. So what? It, who's completing degrees? Who's acquiring the debt? How long is it taking them to pay back debt? That is something that we should be seeing for our, our university systems providing that information back to students. Well, and what kind of jobs are they what getting? What kind of jobs yeah. are they getting? Which And which and breaking that down, not just overall at the college level, but by schools, by degree, you know, who's getting what, what actually, what does it mean when you sign the dotted line? For $20,000 of debt per year, what is your wage then after? An important calculation in there, too, is that we're making the assumption that a college degree is the best path, yeah. is your best path, where, whereas uh, associate degrees, trade schools are also wonderful paths for, for people and that, that there's value in those that don't necessarily, that you have to weigh that value proposition as well as the value proposition of, of higher ed, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. But then that goes back to we need to know always we need, like we need the data we need to know which opportunities which credentials which pathways are leading you there to follow up on what justine said not only do we everyone who's thinking about education policy and economic policy need the data the actual families and the students need the data because i think there's a kind of a wealth of evidence now that a great many young people are making education decisions and decisions about how much to go in de- into debt for example um uh, with an extreme lack of clarity as to what the earnings for potential is, for example, of different career paths. Oftentimes, surveys show that uh, young people are taking on significant uh, uh, student debt that they actually believe is a grant. They don't think they'll ever have to pay it back. They just kind of weren't well informed on, on the contract that they're signing. Um, uh, and uh, you know, and I think there's also a fair bit of evidence, uh, experimental evidence, that suggests that when you make kind of relatively minor interventions to help young people and their families understand a little bit better uh, kind of the decisions that they make, that they actually make decisions that are much more in their interest. So that, that kind of shows that on the one hand, bad news, not enough information out there right now, but good news is a little bit of intervention, uh, inter- information just might actually help a lot. Holly, I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe our favorite higher ed leader, <laughs> former governor of Indiana, current Retiring president of Purdue University. Well, he's still got four months. To four go. months. He's soon to retire. Mitch Daniels, who you spoke to this spring and who has famously held costs at Purdue, a world-class public university, low, no, no increases while massively diversifying their student body. And what does he have to say about this? Yeah, he look, he's also a budget hawk. So he thinks about how to serve students as well as how to sort of run an organization in a really fiscally sound way and um, on issues of of student debt. He's been really careful because, as Anne mentioned, he's held tuition flat since he's been there, which is 10 years. You look at what's happened, and I think we all acknowledge, I mean, college affordability is a problem. It has been a problem for decades, and it's getting worse, not better, which is in part why we saw student loan forgiveness happen over the past several weeks, because there is an affordability problem. And in many cases, colleges and universities, or in, in almost all cases, have raised tuition, with the exception of a school like Purdue, multiple times over the consumer price index, over 10 years, 20 years, pick your period of time, but like you can pick almost any period of time. 
and tuition and fees and room and board have significantly outpaced uh, the consumer price index. So families feel this crunch, and I think we need to acknowledge that. It is a huge issue. Um, but what, what we're talking about at the federal level sort of ignores what institutions should be thinking about at an institutional level and what somebody like Mitch Daniels has, in my point of view, very admirably done as a higher ed leader, which has said, what can I do and what can we do? And every year, he just wrote a piece about this, he says every year when they tackle their budget, they start with the premise of what would it take to avoid a fee increase? That is not how most higher ed institutions start this discussion. And it's so responsible of him to do, to say, how can we find other ways, especially even in an inflationary year like this, they have not raised tuition at Purdue. Wow. And they have figured out creative things to do in their institution. Um, uh, But he also says it's really not that hard. I mean, when you have a massive budget like a public university like Purdue has, you can start to find dollars and cents that make a difference. And when he just wrote about this um, yesterday, at the same time that they've kept tuition flat, um, they now have 60% of their students who graduate debt-free. Debt per student has been cut in half in that same period to just over $3,000. I mean, $3,000 is manageable student Mm -hmm. debt. And I think everybody would generally acknowledge that. And then he says that had Purdue raised tuition at the national average over that 10-year period, students' families would have sent us more than $1 billion more than they have. So that's what it meant over a 10-year period where he was willing to say, we don't need to do this. Um, and, and he's had, and he's had the, the, they've increased the size of the student body. That's one way they've handled this. I mean, more students allows you to have more incoming revenue when you're willing to keep tuition flat. So he's been one of those leaders who came in as a non-traditional higher ed leader. He does not have a background in academia and brought this point of view of, well, how do we run the institution and keep students and families as the centerpiece? And as a former governor, I think he took this lens of, this is public money. And we have to be really thoughtful about it. And so I think in the context of the debate about whether student loan forgiveness is an appropriate public policy answer to college affordability right now, a lot of people are struggling with the whole notion of like making choices about who we're serving yep. and how. So we're, we're starting to dip our toes into it. So let's, let's dive head first. Like the recently, President Biden announced the plan to cancel up to $10,000 of student debt if you have a federal student loan and are less than $125,000 a year as an individual or $250,000 as a, as a household. And if you've received a Pell Grant, grant there's, there's $20,000 of forgiveness. When this was announced, Justine, what was your, what was your reaction? I'm just curious. Let's, 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 be, let's be honest here. Like there's several of us around the table that, have, uh, that are much further from college uh, years than, than Justine was. And so, you know, someone that's more recently dealt with these things, like what was your reaction? My, my initial reaction was um, understanding that this was going to provide a lot of relief to a lot of um, individuals who greatly need it. But unfortunately, it's a band-aid to a long-term solution that's not actually getting at the root of the problem. And so honest frustration that it allows a, it takes away from the big conversation which we're kind of having here at the table, which is how do we make college affordability manageable for individuals in, as we think through? And what is this? What are the incentives that this then drives to the market, to consumers, to in, institutions, to loan providers in the future? And so, 
understanding that those are two sides of the coin. It does provide some relief now, but it's not really answering the big questions that we spend a lot of our time thinking about. Public dollars should serve the public good. There are loan forgiveness or loan reduction programs in place designed to to attract people to sectors, positions, things that we need. We talked about the GI Bill as a big one in that. Justine, you, I think, got AmeriCorps because you were teaching, right? Like there are, there are ways to incent people to go into more public service, public sector type jobs that we need where we know they're not going to have a big cash out. They're not going to get equity. They're not going to get a big bonus at the end of the year that would some of the things in other sectors that give you a little more economic upside. But we sure need, we sure need people in the military who are great. We sure need people in our schools who are great or on police forces, nurses, doc- there's lots of when you think about that. So to me, that is like one of the more interesting public policy questions. Yeah. How do we drive relief of of debt in some ways as a, a repayment for service to our country that could look like a lot of different things. And I think something, a policy like what's happening now sort of negates any val- any value of those kinds of programs, which I think is, um, is, is really disappointing. And it's just sort of a, as Justine said, it's a, it's not, there's nothing systemic about this solution. Um, and, and that's what I think is deeply frustrating. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't think about that was, was that, yeah, now, someone that's thinking about going to the military um, to serve their country and reap the benefit of of the GI Bill, which is going to help them with their education. Now they might recalculate that in a time where, you know, Matt Amidon just wrote wrote an op-ed saying that, you know, the volunteer force is, is having a volunteer force is at risk if we're not careful as a country. And, and we're these, these, that's a great example of like an unintended impact that some of these things can have. Yes, absolutely. And that's like, those are those are risks we can't afford, right? right? We can't like there's a lot of things that make America great as a country and part of it is the fact that we've got like a we have kind of a superpower around education we have to date and we're getting better and better at providing access to more people. And when affordability like this and the way we help people manage debt and we think strategically when all that is sort of compromised in the way that we're doing, we can't just assume that we'll have the we'll have great, well prepared people and all the kinds of jobs we need as a country to succeed. And so that's what's you know, when you think about this, it's a it's a great soundbite to talk about loan forgiveness. We've seen that. It's been everywhere. It's people have rushed to the polls, oftentimes, you know, aligned politically on one way or the other. And it's really missing the important conversation, which is about affordability and where do we need to make sure we've got people well prepared. And so Colm, you're an you're an economist, you're the economist here at the table. The my presumption without really looking into it would be that okay more this might make more people think they can afford college wouldn't that be great for the economy well i think we have to be careful about how we kind of structure the conversation i think i think we're all kind of in very strong agreement here in general the direction policymakers should be aiming is clear we live in an increasingly knowledge centric economy we need to prepare young people to thrive in that economy to be able to earn a living wage um, and uh, be upwardly mobile uh, and to thrive in that economy um, so do we want a, a more educated uh, public a- absolutely so now what i would argue is uh, what we should be aspiring to is we should be looking first of all at uh, the s- supply side of higher education we should be thinking about how we create more and better pathways for young people to head towards that 
living wage, that agency in their lives, that uh, opportunity to thrive. Uh, we should be thinking about how uh, technology can help deliver the learning that people traditionally get in a four-year institution in more and more productive ways. Uh, we should be thinking about that. And we should be thinking about how to do the whole thing in a way that is financially sustainable, both for the, the individuals and their families and for the, for the nation, for society. So, so where are we in terms of this policy? Um, I'm, I'm not a fan. I think that we're, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're tackling a, uh, a significant issue here. I don't think the administration is wrong to be thinking about uh, the burden that is on a number of individuals these days. Uh, but I think that if you, if you look at it against the benchmark of, are we going to create a more educated public in a financially sustainable way? We're kind of headed backwards here with this policy. Um, we're... Um, uh, first of all, on the supply side, we don't really in any way tackle it with this policy. On the contrary, you could argue, and many have, that the policy, in a sense, gives the higher ed sector a chance to double down on the old status quo, essentially just to raise prices right right in line with the uh, potential ability to pay of uh, the, the potential students who will be uh, borrowing under the new policy. Okay, so... That's arguably not very constructive. And as for the financial sustainability for the individuals themselves, uh, I think a lot of the danger in this policy, it isn't just what we have, what President Biden and the administration are doing for the people who borrowed in the past. It is the giant signal being sent to the students of the future that if they take on a whole lot of debt, that just maybe, perhaps even wink, wink, probably, it will be forgiven, right? Mm. Um, and so then the question that, that they have to face is, okay, do I make that bet, considering that that's not actually been clearly spelled out? Am I actually making a bet on who will be in the White House or what public policy will be, what the political whims of the moment will be? So people are, are, are if anything, they need clearer information about their choices going ahead. Instead, we're making it more opaque, more of a kind of a, 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 a risky bet. That's not what the, the message we should be conveying. One, I think one of the things, as somebody who's worked in education policy for a long time, one of the constant frustrations, and this doesn't, this doesn't sort of necessarily do anything to this fundamental issue, but uh, there is a fundamental problem in that every time we increase, and there are studies that show this, when you increase federal aid, grants and loans, colleges raise tuition. Mm -hmm. There's a corresponding factor there. So it's not... I mean, every time, even, even policymakers struggle with this because everybody wants to make sure college remains affordable and figure out how to provide more aid. But what we see is this vicious cycle is you provide more aid and then the colleges just raise tuition. And then we have, and going back to this market system, it's not really a market system because then you're having to figure out, well, how much grant aid do I get, whether it's Pell Grants provided by the federal government, some sort of state grant aid or private institutional aid, plus your loans to then figure out what's your annual out-of-pocket cost. And it's hard for families. I mean, back to Justine's point, it's hard for families, especially low-income families, to figure out that mix and then figure out, I mean, even if a if an Ivy League institution can subsidize tuition for so many of its students, you know, then you have, it's just really a really hard system to navigate and understand how you make choices about those four or maybe five or six years, because it's not always easy to complete everything in four mm -hmm. um, years that you spend. And then what it's going to mean for your lifetime of student loan payments if right. you do take on that debt. So we've not done much as policymakers to simplify that. And we've also not and then what we also see, and I think this is, a, this is a hard conversation that there's no easy answer for, but this goes back to the role of the institution. 
I mean, institutions just keep sort of being the beneficiaries of this. We increase student aid, they're able to pass on, maybe not all, but a significant amount of that through tuition increases, and we're doing nothing to solve the problem. So I think that's, um, uh, that's a big question that is still looming out there. And when you forgive student loans, you know, it, this isn't really going to do anything to, to tackle that fundamental question. The other thing I would add is we have a lot of people who have outstanding student loans who never graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the institutional role and back to our friend Mitch Daniels, who has long talked about that there should be some role for the institution and some burden and risk that the institution is asked to take on when they have students who leave with debt, especially if they don't graduate, right. because there's a role of the college in there. And right now, they get off scot-free. And it all sits on the individual, right? Yeah. And so those are the very compelling cases where when you look at student loan forgiveness, you say, you know what? I get people need help. Um, but we're not, it, it's not fixing these institutional issues. Holly, I was just thinking about the, when you're talking about that, we talk about accountability so much on the K-12 side. And accountability on higher ed is messy. Yeah, really <laughs> You messy. got to see a lot of that up yep. close during the Bush administration. Yep. Because you're not dealing, we can talk about it in K-12 through state, the state government, the state yep. ag- education agencies have a lot of con- more control and oversight of local education agencies, districts typically. Yep. What, what, what is different when we talk about higher ed accountability? What oh, can yeah. you let well, people know? Higher ed accountability, number one, I mean, it, you know, we've got a much, much more of a mix of public and private in the higher ed system than we do in, in K through 12. Um, we also have something that just practically speaking makes it tough is like people crossing state lines all the time to go to college. So when we talk, one of the things we talked about in the Bush administration was um, transfer of credit. So trying to help students be able to get through if they go to more than one institution more quickly. Because if you go to one institution and you take biology, that biology class doesn't always transfer to the next institution, even though it probably should. Um, and, and the accrediting bodies, which are one of the sort of have more control in higher ed than most people realize, aren't necessarily tackling that issue. Yeah. And there's no real natural authority to do it other than Congress sort of weighing in heavily. Um, federal aid is the biggest lever they have, and, and we haven't really figured out how to do that. And at the same time, we haven't seen a lot of leadership within the higher ed sector who stepped up and said, this is an issue and we need we ourselves need to think creatively about how to tackle this. Yeah, two things I mean, I was thinking of there that I wanted to jump in on. One is this issue tying back, you know, higher ed accountability goes back to, you know, K-12 accountability because a key issue there too is, when we graduate students from our K-12 education system that aren't prepared for college, as a result, they get to an institution and are taking remedial courses that are not credit-bearing, still paying college tuition for those courses, and accumulating debt that just pushes back their graduation date. So it's important that these systems are linked, and it's an important why, you know, why graduating with a, in K-12 or high school to go to college is so critical that you're at that level. Because, um, again, a lot of students leave when they aren't you know, when they realize that they're pushing back that graduation date. The second thing that I kind of was thinking of as we're having this conversation was around the, just the, you know, bringing up what is the obligation that colleges have to individuals and that, you know, the, it is the individuals bearing the cost and that are impacted by this. And so I was thinking through, you know, we, and you brought up even moral hazard, right? Like the institutions can continuing to raise the cost. And so who bears it? it it's the humans that are 
trying to pay their wage or build, you know, income to pay for a house or provide for their families. And so we do have a history of of paying off debt and, and the 08 crisis and PPE loans. And so how is this different, right, than providing a large institution financial relief if we're going to be providing it, you know, different, now we're just providing it to individuals? How, how is it different? Someone spells like what? That's a, that's an interesting argument. Is that okay? We've bailed out industries before. Why can't we bail out individuals that have that are that similarly have made a decision that they wish they could maybe go back and say, okay, instead of going to that private university, I'm going to go get my English degree from a public university. Like how how is this? Yeah, that. please. How is it? Different? Yeah. Well, for, first of all, I think it's. I've had the opportunity to think a lot about, for example, the financial crisis of 2008 mm-hmm. and the policies that were pursued at that time. And uh, one thing I think we know from the whole history of finance and financial crises and so forth uh, is that we're, you're always faced with the moral hazard question. Like there's society will never escape from that. There is always the question of, um, you know, something people make their bets and the world is uncertain. Something goes wrong. And then the question is, well, if government steps in and bails out the people who suffer when things go wrong, then, uh, you know, everyone will be incented to, uh, to take on particularly risky behavior going forward, right? We'll send that kind of signal, and that will lead to more problems down the road. On the other hand, when things go wrong, oftentimes it's not entirely the individual's fault. Uh, you know, it's a complex matter, uh, and actually both, you know, arguably uh, uh, both just good public policy goals and let's say, just decency and morality suggests that it is actually reasonable to extend some kind of uh, bailout. Um, so it's and always- Cullum, the, tr- the TARP program back in 2008 ended up actually making yes. money. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. going to say. So, I mean, right, it's the devils so, in the details, so pol- as it always is. Yeah, so policymakers, if they're smart, they try to walk that line carefully. 2008, as, as Holly said- Banking system gets into a whole lot of trouble. A lot of, lot of uh, parents and grandparents of that debacle. A lot of different you know, people at fault. But when it was all said and done, government, contrary to what a lot of people think, did not, under the Bush administration or the Obama administration, sail in, write giant checks to the banking sector and say, thank you very much. Uh, on the contrary, they made loans with highly punitive terms that the bank, the bankers hated having those loans <laughs> outstanding. In almost every case, they paid them back with interest and the taxpayers made money on the bailout. In that yes. sense, it was a loan that worked. It was a good credit, you know, credit smart loan. More recently, we had in the early months of COVID, Congress came up with something called the the um, Paycheck Protection Program (PPP), and there too, we've heard the analogy made a lot. And it's I, I wouldn't argue it's a totally wrong analogy, but there are certain things to clarify. The idea of the Paycheck Protection Program from the get go was that Congress was going to um, extend loans through the Small Business Administration to small businesses even medium-sized ones, and it was saying, if you do X, Y, and Z, primarily keep your workforce employed there, we will forgive that loan. There was a pretty pretty significant public policy goal there. It was to avoid gigantic unemployment, and it actually was quite successful uh, at that. Um, so in that sense, Congress made a promise to the borrowers. The borrowers then, if they fulfilled the promise, didn't ever have to pay the loan back arguably a pretty successful policy. Now, some of us would quibble about the particular design of it. And now actually kind of a side story in the news is uh, people who gamed that system. It was pretty gameable, to be frank. But here we roll forward to today. And I would argue a sensible approach to the student debt issue is to start with the idea that smart policy is going to walk that line carefully. It's going to recognize you don't want to create giant moral hazard for the future. 
send terrible signals to the people who will make decisions in the future, but you can have something of a heart for the people who made their bet and through, you know, reasons that were beyond their own agency. Uh, the bet didn't work out very well. You know, things went wrong in their life. They weren't able to, to finish college. They stopped out with thirty or $40,000 of debt. There ought to be public policy help for that. And in fact, there already was well before the administration, back, going back to the Obama administration, there were already policies that limited how much you had to pay based on income. We weren't very good at executing those policies, getting people enrolled in them and administering them. That was a failure, I think. Uh, but at least we have the idea. And I think an important piece of that just is because uh, I think it's, it's been, it has disappointed me. I think it makes people cynical, right? When you see the argument of so-and-so got their PPE loan forgiven, but they aren't for this program, the student loan. And I just, gross oversimplification like that panders to the lowest common denominator of like emotion as opposed to fact, right? That is not new, right? That's happened. But it's so so disappointing to me in this because I think if you actually think about the people, right? I'm guessing all of us around this table know someone who was able to keep their job and keep being paid because of PPE, right? I know, I know several people, several organizations, and it's sort of, it was also a reward to risk of the people who started those organizations, entrepreneurs, CEOs of relatively small companies, or an enormous amount of risk and hard work in a small entity like that. And that is a quintessential American thing to be able to do that. Right? So it's like that policy was designing, it was protecting what we need, people to start and run small and medium-sized businesses and people who work at those institutions. And so that is like, we can't, we can't, that's about people, like a lot of people that we all know. And I think that is, and it's not that the student loan piece is different, but those are, that, that to me is the difference between systemic and sort of a moment in time. And I think the cynicism sometimes that a policy like that, that, that we're seeing now creates around the gamesmanship and like sort of who is this rewarding? What's the timing with midterms? Like that sort of cynicism brings out the worst in us instead of the best when I think about like policy design, you know, and Holly, I, I know you know a lot about how do you use executive orders, how, like how, to, how do you, the actual mechanics of policy like this and what is, what was that like? Well, so this one, I mean, th- this is where there's a lot, when you get outside of the, you know, should we pr- be forgiving debt? That's a whole issue. But then there's the how is this done, which it was done through executive authority. Um, And, you know, you have to be careful about this um, because as soon as you use executive authority, it just gives incentive to, to, you know, other administrations to do the same thing. And they, and arguably a lot of people have said they're on very thin sort of ice for how they, for how the Biden administration did this because they used authority um, from the HEROES Act, which basically says that the secretary has authority around war, military operations, national emergencies. Mm-hmm. So they use the national emergency as COVID to do this. Now, what they had been doing for two years had 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 skeptics, but didn't have as significant, you know, kind of questions around it as this, which was they put a moratorium on student loan payments during COVID. Uh, but then actually moving to full-on sort of debt forgiveness is a whole other thing. And a lot of Democrats said they didn't have the legal authority to do this. The Biden administration put out a memo sort of arguing where they think they have the legal authority to do this. This is likely to probably end up in some sort of court battle um, because they didn't go through Congress. 
And I think so many people are saying, if you really wanted to do this, you would have gone through Congress. And this is why there's, you know, people could tell this was done. He made, Joe Biden made this promise on the campaign trail and wanted to be able to say, I was able to accomplish at least a piece of this. So he used executive authority. And, you know, that just for people who are good policy makers and want to follow the democratic processes we have in place, this didn't follow it. And then it leads to just all kinds of other like opportunities for people to try and drive a truck through what is a, you know, very small window to try and get big things done. And I would have argued that, look, if they, if it, if this went through Congress, it would have benefited from the fact that you have 535 members who would have weighed in on all the questions we've been talking about today. Who, who are, who deserves it the most? How do we pay for it? You know, what are, what are the other public policy solutions that we might be putting on the table that would actually address the affordability issue? And we probably wouldn't be debating it as much in the news today as if it had gone through Congress. Mm-hmm. PPP went through Congress. Yeah. So you can like it or not like it. You can argue whether it's similar or not, but it at least followed our democratic processes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It also was overwhelmingly supported by both parties in Congress. It was extremely bipartisan and mostly is viewed today, I think, as a uh, success at uh, keeping um, millions of people in their jobs. Um, I was going to explore another um, issue, I think, raised by uh, the, the debt forgiveness plan. Um, and that is, there's, there's, there's kind of the question out there, well, there's, there's 40-odd million people getting some kind of benefit from that. D- does someone pay for that? Is there someone on the other side of that transaction? That's, that's kind of a big, mm-hmm. you know, a big question. Um, I heard it was magical elves. Is that not correct? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping we can figure out how to get them to pay for it because they, you know, they've been making a lot of money at Christmas yeah. and so forth. Um, uh, so, just printing money and, you know. Yeah. Yes. So I think there is this perception. In fact, when President Biden was asked about it, he basically said, we're going to pay for it like we've been paying for it through uh, – uh, just, you know, the deficit's been falling. Like, duh, the deficit's been falling because we haven't passed another American rescue plan. We haven't plan- passed another multi-trillion dollar spending plan. Of course, the deficit is trending down. That was not a very, you know, convincing answer. So if we start to analyze, well, who really pays? You know, I think there's a perception out there, well, among other things, the, you know, the truck driver, the medical aid and so forth, who never attended a four-year school and never uh, incurred debt somehow is going to pay. So let's clarify that for, you know, for our listeners. Um, uh, it is probably not the case that Congress will pass a tax increase imposed on the truck drivers and the medical assistants and everybody else to transfer uh, the $500 billion to the people who are the beneficiaries of this policy. That would not Nor be popular. Yeah. Nor should they. they aren't, they're not planning on it. It's not going to happen. However, what we have seen in the last two years of very high inflation has been a wonderful economics lesson for everybody. It's a lesson that money doesn't grow on trees, that if government conjures up um, you know, money out of nowhere and, and puts spending power into the hands of people that far exceeds the economy's ability to create goods and services, government doesn't just create wealth and consumption out of nowhere. It just raises the price of everything. Mm-hmm. Inflation is a tax on everybody. And it's not just that. It's a regressive tax that falls disproportionately on low-income people, as we have abundantly seen over the last couple of years. It is an arbitrary tax that falls in very 
inequitable and uh, kind of unpredictable ways on different uh, people. It is the worst of all possible taxes, and it is, in fact, the tax that the U.S. government has imposed on American people, particularly low to moderate income people, over the last two years by trying to spend way beyond uh, the ability of the economy to deliver goods and services. So right here, we're conjuring $500 billion out of thin air Someone pays, and it's pretty predictable who that will be. Right. Well, we, we spent a lot of time, I think, kind of you know looking at some of the cons of this of this action. But other than we've kind of agreed that going through Congress would have could have tackled some of the issues that have come up. But what, from a, from the productive side of the ledger, what are some things that you guys around the table would have could would do to start? tackling college affordability, not necessarily student loan forgiveness, but college affordability specifically. Transparency. Transparency around value. A little bit what Justine was referring to earlier. So when you've got this like cumbersome, not quite a marketplace, people who no one's really incented to keep costs down unless you are Mitch Daniels, who we just love because he cares <laughs> about this and leads that way. But he's he's a little bit of a unicorn right now in higher ed. So how do you, on the consumer side, students and families transparency around value. And as Justine was describing, like you can imagine how you might make decisions differently if you understand, okay, if I'm going to be an art history major, and I love art history, right? Like, mm-hmm. But like, you got to be making a choice. If you're getting an art history degree at a, at a uh, private institution, chances are you're going to spend a lot for that degree and you might have a lower paying job in a museum for a while, right? You should, you should go in with your eyes wide open for that. Right. And they tend not to be high paying. Right. And so if you've got a significant student loan payment, it's going to eat up a big old chunk of your income. And I think the same thing, we see this in education too, whether you go to, I did a, uh, my education degree was a master's degree at a private institution, but I did work study to pay for it instead of a loan, which I'm grateful for because you, when you come out and you're teaching, you're not making a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's an inter- those are interesting questions. People should have some clarity or be clear eyed about what that looks like. And I think the sector can do things a lot better. I also love using loan forgiveness very strategically by sectors that we need to have people in. Military example is a great one in the GI Bill. Like that that is to me is a really productive use of incentives and uses of public dollars. Mm-hmm. Justine, what do you think? I mean, I agree. I mean, as you alluded to earlier, that I'm, you know, a recipient of of the AmeriCorps money for doing a Teach for America experience, and was able to pay off a significant of my loans through that, you know, through that experience. It wasn't the driving reason I did it, but it is as you know, teacher shortage right now. There are ways that, and as I was saying, we can be really strategic with how we're using loans to provide incentives in the right way. And this, as we've, you know, a lot of us have said at the table, this particular policy is just going to continue to have the wrong incentives when we can be driving policy that has the right incentives. Tell tell me more about your AmeriCorps experience. So did you know you were going to do that when you, when you enrolled in college? Like what, 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 Talk, walk, walk us through that. Like uh, this is this is foreign to me. And um, I did not know. So I kind of as um, narrowing in on kind of what I wanted to do post college, um, and felt you know a strong interest to go into education and do the Teach for America specifically program um, where I was able to teach um, at a Title One school, so a lower income socioeconomic status school. Um, through that experience, Teach for America is part of the AmeriCorps program. So going into areas of service, um, you can have up to $5,000, it's a little over $5,000 of loan forgiven um, and deferred while you're in the program for each year that you're in it. So I was in the program for two years. You can also use that money to continue your education um, if you didn't have debt. So 
another way to look at it too, right? So you're not penalized if you hadn't taken out debt or had work throughout your experience to take it on, which is a common thing, right? We hadn't quite talked about at the table, but, you know, thinking through forward too, so you're, you're, you're able to use it in two ways. Gotcha. Gotcha. Colin, what, what's, uh, give us something forward looking. Well, I, I, I love what Anna and Justine are saying about the demand side for, you know, the actual, the, the, the borrower or the student, like more information, opportunities for forgiveness in exchange for actual service, such as AmeriCorps service in the armed forces, for example. I also think it's really important we think about the supply side of, uh, higher ed. Um, uh, I, I think that if policymakers are smart, they'd really think about creating space to innovate. Uh, I think it's important that we recognize that this is a sector that has uh, not experienced great innovation or great, you know, declines in the like the unit cost of delivering a certain amount of learning uh, for, Colin, for many that's decades. That's the nice way to say it. I'm being really, really generous. <laughs> Well, I do teach at a, teach at a university, so <laughs> yeah. I want to I want to be nice. Uh, I can't wait for Holly's version of the same. But yeah. uh, but that that being the case, you know, if you start to think about well, what does it mean to create space to innovate? Right, you could well imagine that if the if the the financial systems that support higher ed and the accreditation systems that govern higher ed and so forth could all kind of be orchestrated not around, let's say, um, try to make the status quo run really smoothly until the end of time, but actually to say, you know what, how about create a pretty clear path where some new, you know, upstart entity could figure out how to do some some part of the higher ed experience really cheaply. Like, what if there are certain basic classes that you could do really cheaply, and then, as Holly said earlier, in a very transparent way, transfer those credits into an institution for the more advanced classes? There's a lot of ways you could go. Um, you know, I think we ran this great big experiment in the first year of COVID, and I, I myself lived it, uh, teaching a class of uh, college students. Um, we ran an experiment with everybody going online. Uh, it wasn't exactly version 1.0. Let's say it was version 2.0 of online higher ed. I think when we look back on that, we won't say it was a total catastrophe. I would say we would say, you know, we learned a lot from it. There were there were things that maybe worked better than planned. There were other things that really were missed. But the point is not to say the final evidence is in and we're done on that front. The point is to say, what did we learn from it? How do we actually how do we actually, you know, put that learning to work and come up with version 3.0 and version 4.0 uh, that actually um, will create cheaper cheaper to deliver and cheaper to the student paths to learning the same things or possibly even learning more. Um, and it doesn't have to be in a way that totally, you know, cuts out the existing higher ed sector. It could be paths where there's uh, some kind of dynamic interplay between, you know, new new startups of some kind and the existing institutions in ways we haven't thought through yet. I'll bet that Mitch Daniels, who, of course, at Purdue acquired Kaplan, acquired a major online provider, is thinking about that. It's probably the case that a lot of his peers who are university presidents are pretty far behind him in thinking about that. I would urge that um, that our policymakers basically say, we want to create lots of incentives to take the cost down, improve learning at great, in more efficient ways, and not reinforce the status quo. I do think, quickly jump in here, that if institutions don't do it, employers will, right? We're already seeing that employers are filling a gap with short-term credentials that do have really quick access to high opportunity wages. And so this is an area where we will see, I think, you know, private ins- employers fill this need. If institutions slumber, they yeah. will, their yeah. irrelevance will but, come. But Holly did make a really important be- a point before, which is that uh, uh, 
there's the question, who's in charge of making it all happen? There's a, there's a coordination problem. You know, the existing university presidents, other than Mitch Daniel and a handful of other innovative stars, uh, may not actually be leading the charge. Who does? The Federal Department of Education, which is not always... Holly, you, you, you... No, we don't have as many. I mean, we, we provide... We're significantly more involved in higher ed than in K-12, through but the U.S. Department of Education does it mostly through grants and loans, and it's hard to figure out the actual levers for how to do that because so much of the policy comes from the other incentives, which are accreditation and, you know, so many other things, um, college rankings, how those are done. And it is a hard sector to shape up. I mean, we've seen in various states when some somebody comes along and says, we should change everything, you know, about the way we do it. They rattle the cages, but it actually turns out that the, uh, the higher ed status quo, generally speaking, repels those challenges and keeps things pretty much the way they are. I would say hell hath no fury like a faculty senate, right? Like there is, <laughs> there is a, I don't, I'd never underestimate the obstructionism of of sort of of higher ed faculties. And I say that as the daughter of a professor, there there's just a different way of operating. I, this is where I get really curious about a federal role around transparency yeah. and outcome data, which doesn't solve for everything, but it, it levels the playing field for consumers in a way that we don't have now. And let me, let me say this as a bright spot. We are much better today. We're not where we need to be, but we're much better today than where we were 20 years ago in terms of what data we have at the higher ed level. There's a thing called college scorecard, and you can actually go look at institution and in many senses degree programs within the institution, and it'll show you price tag versus earnings Hmm. 10 years out. I did not know about and this. the Georgetown Center for Education and Workforce has done a lot of great work mm-hmm. on this, where they're able to do what we've been talking about today, which is not just say, how much does it cost to go to Harvard or UMass or to go to SMU or UT or Dallas College, but actually what is the individual degree mean for your earnings? Mm-hmm. And there's, there are cases of associate's degrees at certain institutions paying you more in 10 years than a graduate degree from an Ivy League institution. Wow. But but number one, you got to actually get people to know the data is there, and then you need them to be able to understand how to use it, and you got to start this way before you ever enroll in higher right. ed. And, and I think another thing we need to kind of recognize, I, I think it's it's really good news to hear, Holly, you, to hear you talk about like how far we've come over a pretty short period of time. I think it's always useful to take a little bit of a long-run historical view and recognize we're really not that far out from a time in the past when higher ed was essentially for the very few. It was an elite undertaking. That's that's what it was. There was not any expectation that the vast majority of the public would engage in higher ed. Um, so we have been dramatically democratizing access to higher ed. And thank goodness, thank goodness. I mean, we, we, we'd be in serious trouble as a country yeah. if we hadn't done so on all kinds of uh, fronts. But it's like, as we've democratized it, we've, we've got all kinds of backfilling to do. There's all kinds of problems that created that we never figured out how to solve. And one is, how do you actually create systems in which really large numbers of people, a, t- a very diverse population where a whole lot of the people's parents did not do higher ed, and maybe their parents, in some cases, don't speak English very well, and they certainly don't have you know, all the connections and the, ability, the great coaching, great, great counseling at their school and so forth that maybe you know, kids in kind of the, the best, you know, the, the fanciest private schools, uh, prep schools in the East or something have. How, how do you actually run the whole system in a highly democratized uh, way that is meant to actually create the best odds for success for millions and millions uh, who um, the system wasn't that long ago, it absolutely was not built to serve. 
Right. Justine, I mean, you, you experienced, you know, this, the, the world very specifically when you were teaching with AmeriCorps. What, from your perspective, were those, were those kids, like to Colm's point that, that some folks aren't, you know, that it's just the education isn't there. From your perspective, what were you, what were you seeing? Yeah, I think that's where I immediately went when Colm was talking about that because it's for a lot of ki- for a lot of individuals, you're putting everything you have on the line to go to college. You're putting every dollar, you're taking out amounts, like, and you're putting everything on this dream that by going to college for four years and getting this degree, I'm set. And that's just, it's just not true, right? Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, you're, you pick a degree and it works out, but for a lot of people, it doesn't. And unfortunately, I had a lot of students who you know, are, are dealing with that. It took longer to go to college. It was much more expensive than they thought when they initially started, had the issue that I talked about earlier where they had to retake classes. So, I mean, I, I think through, those are the issues that I think through when we start thinking around, we're, we're telling people that this is the way to do it, but we're not thinking through what does it look like to actually, um, ensure that everybody comes out of it. One of the best examples we had was a young woman we spoke to for the Texas Story series where we looked at how well some Texas cities are preparing their young people for opportunity. Bushstudder.org slash Texas Story. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> In Dallas, we spoke to a young woman who's now the UT student body president. Uh, and she went to Pinkston, I believe, the high school. Was she at she went to Lincoln. Lincoln, a high school in Dallas. Um, and she described quite eloquently what she was not prepared to do when she got to UT versus students who'd gone to other schools and how it set her back and how much extra hustle and hard work she had to do to even understand how to navigate once she was on campus and what, how to think about her, everything from how to think about Mm -hmm. her major, how to, I mean, everything, so many things that we do. And so I think that's the, that when I look at like the cost of college and I still see universities who are raising tuition and still doing a terrible job of stuff like that. They're not even, they're raising costs and they're still not spending the money wisely. That I think is an interesting challenge. So I think that's a piece of this, right? There's no person is an island, no institution is an island. So all, all this does have to work in concert, which is why we, we focus on this in our opportunity work. How does education and higher ed and the workforce connect? But there's a lot, there's a lot around this contextually that goes well beyond loan forgiveness. And I think that's why it's so frustrating and disappointing to hear some of this conversation about this, that we're, how it's being covered, when actually we're talking about such a critical core issue. If we're serious about increasing the amount of people in this country who have access to real opportunity and choices for their futures and the ability to support themselves and their families. Holly, we never got back around to you on, uh, on the, um, you know, for a couple forward-looking policy thoughts, like did, uh, what do you have there? Well, I th- I think there's a couple things. Number one, it's this it's this continuing to push the needle on the transparency so that we know and get that information in the hands of consumers in a better way, so people can make better choices about the investments that they're making because these are very serious investments for a lot of people that hopefully will pay off, but don't always don't always yep. pay off. Yep. Um, we can do more. Cullum talked a little bit more about how we've done. We've made a lot of progress on changing some of the models of student loan repayment so that it's this whole um, uh, income-based repayment system where it now fluctuates based on your income. So when you earn less, you pay less. When you earn more, you pay more. We've gotten a little bit more sophisticated about how to do that. So we need to keep going on that. And I do think this question of like how do we find more hooks for the institution um, uh, whether it's through public policy or whether it's through things outside of that system to get them a little bit more on the hook 
for for the effect that happens that when we just provide more aid, it just ends up being higher tuition. We've got to somehow figure out ways to enter into that because otherwise we're just going to keep being in this cycle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Any, any last thoughts from anybody that thoughts you were eager to get out that we didn't have a chance to, to get to as we debate the college affordability issue? This really is a very central, vitally important issue mm-hmm. to the American people. Uh, we, we, we can't get away from the idea that um, creating the educated public of the future who are prepared to do 21st century work and thrive and contribute and live their best life, uh, that's, that's what a great society does. That's at the very core of everything that we should be thinking about in, in public policy and in terms of, you know, uh, building a more opportunity-rich, um, good society. Um, and there's, there's so much noise around all of this and so much emotion. And, you know, I think we kind of need to keep our eyes on the ball. Because it really is an emotional issue. It's if if someone, you know, worked really hard to pay off their debts and they made sacrifices and choices in their life, then then they say those that person next to me didn't make those sacrifices and they just got a got a debt forgiveness. There there's anger there. And on the other side, you could argue that this is, you know, I I've worked hard also and made sacrifices and I still have a a, a heavy debt burden and this really helps my family out. It's 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 hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to be a policymaker. And there's a student who chose not to go to college because yeah. of the cost that they you know didn't make. So I think to Tom's point is, you know, as we look forward, it is important as a country that we have an abundance of of individuals that are prepared for the workforce as we're going forward. And we need and education is a key way to get there. And so we have to make education an affordable pathway for all individuals and all students. Well put, Justine. And uh, I think that puts a nice little bow on it. It's the end of the day. It's a Friday. And if I let us, I feel like we'd keep going here for hours. So Holly, Anne, Justine, Cullum, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for taking us behind the scenes of a Bush Institute policy discussion. Thanks, Andrew. Great. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Great session. Enjoyed it. <laughs>